Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Ring, 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 ring. Uh, Psychiatry consult service. This is James. Hi, James. This is Lindsay. I am on the internal medicine service and I have a new consult for you guys. Okay. Tell me about them. Our patient is a 44-year-old woman with a history of schizophrenia and she was admitted to our service with abdominal pain and was ultimately found to have a small bowel obstruction. So she needs IV antibiotics and an NG tube for decompression, but she's really suspicious of us. I think she's paranoid. She won't make eye contact with us and she actually refuses to engage with us really in any way, even though we're her primary team. She'll just shake her head and say no over and over again when we try to talk about putting in the NG tube. And so our consult question is about if she has the capacity to refuse this. Okay, this sounds like a a capacity question, and we'd be happy to talk it over with you. We'd really appreciate the help. No problem. Thanks. All right. So today we are talking about capacity, decisional capacity. That's right. That's right. And we are coming to you live from a brand new sound studio. So just hear the crisp sounds. The dulcet sounds of our voices. Well, we're, we're happy to do this. And we're happy to start with this episode on capacity. It's episode number two in our consultation or hospital-based psychiatry topics. That's right. And decisional capacity is a really common question that comes up for us in psychiatry. When we think about decisional capacity, there's a widely referenced paper by Dr. Paul Applebaum in the New England Journal of Medicine. He wrote this in 2007. It was a pretty seminal article. This is available online. It's available for everyone. There's a link on our website, which is www.psychessentials.org. Check it out. And it's there for your reference. It's currently considered the standard of practice. So our episode pulls a lot from his discussion. Here's the idea. Doctors, physicians, are required by law and just by ethics and being a good person Mm -hmm. to obtain informed consent from patients before you treat them. Right, because you don't want to just force them to do something against their will. Yeah. Medicine has done that in the past. And it has not been been a good look for us. And so these days, I think that we are much more conscientious of that. Um, But we can run into some issues. So valid or like legitimate informed consent implies that somebody has the appropriate amount of information and then the person actually has the ability or capacity to voluntarily make that type of decision. So it's it's a little bit of a two-way street. The doctors treating you have to give the amount of right amount of information to the patient so that they can make an informed decision. Right, absolutely. And if somebody doesn't have that ability to make a decision, then you need to find a substitute person to to kind of help make some of those decisions. So there's this real balance between protecting people's autonomy and protecting people who don't have the ability to make these types of decisions. So it can be a bit of an ethical dilemma, really, in the realm of autonomy versus beneficence, I would say. Absolutely. That's a great point. And two things that as doctors, we weigh a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes this issue comes up of capacity versus competency. And I've heard it explained as this, which is that competency is a legal decision that comes from the courts 
And capacity is a clinical decision that doctors can make. So we would determine somebody's capacity and we would not globally determine their competency. Now, Paul Applebaum feels like this is actually a little bit murkier than sometimes it's made out to be, and it may not be that clear cut. But regardless, in a very practical way, if the courts were involved in every single case that came you know, through a hospital, one, it would tie up the legal system in a, in a really overly excessive way. And two, it just wouldn't be practical at the speed that medicine needs to be practiced. Right. The court system is super slow. And for a lot of our patients, there are medical emergencies at play and lives are on the line. Absolutely. So in reality, most of the time, doctors and not the courts do determine patients' capacity and when to seek alternative or substitute kind of judgment. Now, as a result of that, or kind of as a correlate of that, I just want to acknowledge that it's that it's appropriate to make some of these decisions for clinical care in a moment, but doctors are not determining somebody's overall ability to make all decisions for themselves in their life. Right. That's more the competence, legal avenue of things. Right, right. Yeah. So we're talking about decisions made about their health in the hospital in the present moment. Now, any physician can do this. Psychiatrists often called to help when um, when there's questions, but really any doctor, any single doctor can make a determination of capacity. And as a learner, this is the time to start practicing. Absolutely. Now, Lindsay, you know, we were talking about capacity, but why might somebody not have capacity? There are plenty of reasons why someone might not have capacity due to many different conditions, both medical or psychiatric. And their lack of capacity may or may not be permanent as well. For example, someone with delirium, their mental status can fluctuate. And so they could be really lucid and clear in one moment and have capacity about something. And then the next hour or so, they might become more foggy and confused and disoriented. And they might lose that capacity. So it can fluctuate. Are there some conditions, are there some types of things that that people often don't have capacity? Well, some conditions are more likely associated with a lack of capacity. For example, someone with really severe schizophrenia or really severe depression might not have capacity, but the presence of those illnesses doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have capacity. I know that in my experience on the consult service, we've we've received a lot of preemptive consults from various consultants asking us if a person has capacity before they've even talked to the patient uh, just because there's a psychiatric diagnosis in their chart or perhaps a dementia diagnosis. But really, you have to go assess the patient and their understanding at the moment that you have the concern about capacity. They're saying that there's no single disease that would automatically rule out capacity. Exactly. Even patients with dementia can potentially have capacity. Okay. And I think that's why it's important to have a standardized approach to go into this with so that you can make a determination with some sense of rigor. Absolutely. And that's where this Applebaum article is incredibly helpful to structure the way you think about capacity. Paul Applebaum outlines four steps, and we're going to go through them one by one, but I do want to outline the four steps right at the top, and then we'll talk about them in a little more depth. Step one is communicating a choice. Somebody has to say what they want 
to have happened to them. And it has to be consistent. And it has to be consistent. Yes. Number two is they have to understand the relevant information on both sides of this decision Mm -hmm. and what their options really are. Number three is a correlate. They have to understand the consequences of those situations. So if you do this, then this could happen. Right. Like how will their decision impact them? Right. What are what are the consequences, like you said? Mm-hmm. And then number four is, as they're going through this, they have to apply some type of reason or rationale in their process, in their decision making. Okay. They have to come at this from a frame of mind that you feel like, oh, okay, I can understand why, even if I don't agree with this decision. Right. So I'm wondering if we can go through each of these scenarios and then briefly discuss some some reasons why someone might not meet the threshold for the, each of those four categories. Yeah, let's do it. And this is not to say these are the only examples, but these are some things that we've seen along the way. Yeah. Okay, so number one is you have to communicate a choice. If somebody was sedated and intubated and not awake and not arousable, that would be a pretty clear reason in my mind of not communicating a choice. Yeah, very true. And it's one of the reasons why we set up, you know, advanced directives and things like this. Absolutely. But just because someone's intubated doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have capacity because sometimes they can have less sedation and be able to answer with like a thumbs up, thumbs down consistently. Sure. Writing on a whiteboard, communicating by moving their eyes. Like if somebody's communicative that, you know, that's the first step, communicating the choice. Mm Now, if somebody's so tired that they they can't they're awake but they can't even like stay awake as you finish the sentence in that moment they're not communicating a choice. Mm-hmm. If somebody is saying something but then they're vacillating back and forth, they say one thing and then two minutes later to another doctor they say something else and they say something else. That's not like you said communicating a consistent choice. Right, right. Or if somebody picks a choice that's not really a choice that they have, then that's that that that's not valid. You know, what like, would be an example of that? Last week I had a cold and my choice was for the medicine that was going to cure my cold, but that unfortunately does not exist. That is not a thing. No. Right. So that was not a valid choice, even though that may have been a choice that I wanted to make. Okay. Got it. Number two is understanding the information. So this could fail you know, in sort of fundamental ways if somebody just does not know what is wrong with their health. Right, right. Maybe they don't understand or maybe they haven't been told Or maybe they have been told, but they forgot. Or Or they've been told, but they don't believe what the doctors are telling them. Totally. Sometimes people have some sense of the options, but not all of the options. You understand that you could get this chemotherapy, but you don't really understand what would happen if you didn't get the chemotherapy. Right. Sometimes people would fail, not in what are the options, but what are the options if you don't have something happen? For instance, if somebody believed, well, if I don't get this CT scan, then it won't make a difference. When in fact, their oncologist says, no, this is really necessary for staging of your cancer. Yeah. What are some common questions that you use, James, to help elicit this information? Some questions I might ask are like, tell me in your own words what your doctors or what I have told you about what's going on with your health right now? Mm -hmm. What are the current problems? What are the recommended treatments that the doctors think? And what are some of the possible benefits or discomforts of going through with that treatment? Got it. What alternatives exist for you? Mm -hmm. What would happen 
if you did not seek treatment. Category number three is appreciating the situation and its consequences. This could be, like we said, not totally grasping what could happen if you didn't do this. If I get the surgery, there's a 75% chance I'm going to die, so I'm not getting the surgery. Mm-hmm. When in fact, surgery and anesthesia have said, well, no, the estimated risk is less than 1% for general anesthesia. Got it. So yeah. you're to- the risk is totally mis- you're totally misunderstanding that. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody said, "Oh no, I could have this eye surgery in 2 years and I'd be fine," when ophthalmology thinks that they'll lose their vision like tonight if they don't get this surgery mm-hmm. for their, you know, acute angle glaucoma. Or sometimes, you know, these are these are kind of like rational misunderstandings, but sometimes it's irrational. Like the doctor recommended this medicine because she's trying to poison me and she's out to get me. Right. Well, that that's not really understanding the situation. Right. The difference between the understanding relevant information and appreciating the situation is with the understanding part. That's what have the doctors told you, essentially, and, and what is your understanding of what they have told you? And then the appreciation part is what do you think is actually going on with yourself and what do you think will happen if you choose the choice that you do, more or less? Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you made that distinction because I think that's important to kind of break down between those two questions which kind of seem similar yeah exactly i remember when i was first introduced to capacity as a medical student i was like understanding and appreciation seem similar so totally fourth is applying some type of reason or rationale in making this this could be totally irrational like well i know this you know i know this is true because the radio told me this is true or not very rational not rational or i don't trust any doctors because they're government agents and they're trying to control my mind and sometimes it is it's not rational i'm not going to get this surgery because i want to live for as long as i can when that's backwards because the surgery team's like no you, this surgery will help you live longer right and so your your stated goal is to live as long as you can but you're not appreciating you're not applying that rationale correctly Right. And if the rationale behind why they made the decision isn't coming out in the interview, just through your interactions with them, you can explicitly ask someone like, how did you make this decision? Or how have you made decisions like this in the past? Like what factors were important to you? Yeah. Why is the the option you chose better than the one that was recommended? Yeah, exactly. That can help elucidate it if it's not clear for you. So those are some situations that may come up and and going through this approach if you feel like somebody is able to meet these four criteria then they have capacity there are other instruments there are ethical criteria and ethical viewpoints for looking at complicated situations but i like these i think they're fairly straightforward i think they're approachable i think these types of questions make sense in my mind as as you kind of filter through them and they flow naturally in a conversation absolutely Capacity can change over time. So especially if you feel like this could be the case or they've told somebody one thing and somebody else something else, evaluating somebody twice at different times of the day is reasonable or obtaining collateral to kind of bolster, you know, is this really the case or is this really going on? A lot of these things had bearing on not just what this person thinks, but what other people think. You know, what does the surgery team think? What does ophthalmology think? What is really going to happen here? What does the patient's brother think is going on? There's some of that as well as you kind of try and ground this process a little bit in reality. What if you've gone through this process? What if somebody does not have capacity? The first question you have to ask yourself and really the primary medical team taking care of them is, does this clinical scenario require an immediate 
intervention. In other words, is there a life or death situation in which them declining the recommended care would result in significant morbidity or mortality for the patient? Can you elaborate on that? Like when you talk about life or death, like what are you talking about here? Someone in the ED who is refusing, who's altered and refusing an LP and simultaneously they're tachycardic, they're febrile, and there's some neurologic signs that would suggest some sort of encephalitis. And the LP is considered urgent. Another situation in the emergency room I tend to think of is if somebody has come in under a trauma code and there are multiple doctors and the person saying like, ow, ow, like, please stop. We tend, we don't stop because like we understand that they're in pain and they don't want this to continue, but we have to do our primary and secondary surveys. And that's just part of it. They, we feel like they don't have the capacity at that point because there's such a high risk of death if we didn't continue. Exactly. Okay. Taking or not taking your insulin can be pretty quickly life or death. Taking or not taking your metformin is less so. Yeah, absolutely. And so if the person doesn't have capacity and they're in an emergent life or death situation, then you provide care that a reasonable person would have consented to. That's what you would tell the medical team taking care of them. Oftentimes, though, we don't get some of those consults because medical providers will know to do that, especially in the ED, but sometimes not. Because this, like you said, it happens so quickly that there's not even time to sort of question the ethics of this. Yeah. It's, I think, sometimes the less acute things that, that come into play. But under any emergent situation, you can always provide somebody medical care and you can always maintain somebody's safety. And that's the power you have as a doctor and a responsibility Mm -hmm. you have as a doctor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's say that this is not immediately life-threatening, but we are still trying to weigh whether somebody has capacity or not. In that case, it's worth trying to figure out why. Why? Like, what's the impairment that's going on here? And can we remedy this situation right like are they hypoxic do they have a really severe fever that's making it hard for them to think clearly are they super sedated are they encephalopathic from uremia i mean there's a million reasons why someone might be impaired in that moment but yet you could potentially fix it with good medical care yeah and and if there's a longer standing sort of cognitive or psychiatric illness treat that and then provide more intensive education. If somebody is really fearful or anxious or terrified because their, you know, their loved one was just in this crash and they're trying to make this decision and they're so overwhelmed, bring in other people, bring in people they trust, bring in people they know, you know, kind of advisors in this situation. That can be a real source of strength and help when you're when you're having trouble making a really hard decision. Yeah, absolutely. And even just taking the time to really understand like what the patient is understanding and where they're declining the care is coming from. It, For example, in the case of that anxiety that you're talking about, if you don't spend the time with the patient, you might not realize that the anxiety is underlying it and you might not know how to you know, alleviate it, for example, by bringing in trusted people that could explain things to them in a language that's more accessible or something. Yeah, providing them a little more time. If they truly don't have to decide overnight, could they decide tomorrow morning once they've slept and eaten something? You know, I don't think none of us make our best decisions when we're feeling, like, stressed and overwhelmed. Yeah. Okay. So if that said, and you still, you know, you've treated somebody for their impairment, they still lack capacity, then that's when you start to think about, how can I find a substitute decision maker? 
Now, an advanced directive is very useful in this circumstance and is sometimes available and sometimes not. This is also, sidebar, our plea to you to please make an advanced directive for your health. Then, <laughs> in the absence of that... Because there uh, often is an absence of that. There is totally an absence of that. And this is a reminder to myself that I should make I was just thinking directive. about it. I was like, oh, is that for me, James? <laughs> this was targeted to Lindsay. <laughs> Um, family. We generally consider family as as the substitute decision makers, and many states have laws of that kind of outline legally the next of kin. Mm-hmm. So, what's the typical order? Most often, it starts with a spouse if the person is in a long term relationship, children like adult over the age of eighteen, adult children, parents, and then siblings. Now. These people usually are supposed to agree. Uh, and if there's a huge disagreement, then you're looking at a different issue and you, you get everyone together, you talk about it, you you know, you know think, you weigh the pros, the cons. You and get... ethics consults can be very helpful to facilitate this situation if there's disagreement. Mm-hmm. And if it's still not getting there, that's when you, you, you go to the court, mm-hmm. basically psychiatry can be helpful in weighing through some of these, but I do want to empower other specialties or if you're a student on another specialty to help to make some of these decisions. So much of it is really based in the medical knowledge that underlays this. Psychiatry Mm -hmm. can kind of help remind folks of these four steps, but really the experts and what are truly the options are going to be the teams of medical providers that are taking care of people. Yeah, and I've heard of some consult psychiatrists who in scenarios where the medical part of it is pretty complex, they bring along a member from the primary team to explain everything to the patient because oftentimes a psychiatrist, it, you know, it's, it's not our specialty and their language is sometimes clearer and more helpful. Yeah, that's actually, I, I employed that strategy. I was talking with a woman who needed eye surgery and there were really complicated options, multiple really kind of nuanced different types of procedures and flaps. And and I thought it was interesting, but I just didn't know, you know, some of these answers like, well, what's the risk of that one? And how long would I need to be, you know, have an eye patch on for that one? And, and these kind of good questions, but nuanced questions that I just didn't didn't know. Yeah, definitely. And I've another common thing that has happened to me on the receiving end of these consults is I've received a number of prophylactic consults for decisional capacity where there's a patient that they're concerned maybe might not have capacity, but there's actually yet not been a decision that has been made by the patient and they're just they're wondering if we can do it ahead of time. And the answer is no, because uh, decision-making capacity can fluctuate. Potentially, you have to assess it at the time that they're making the decision. Right. The first step is, have they made a decision? Right. Exactly. Prophylactic capacity does not exist. Ring, 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 ring. Hi, this is Lindsay with Internal Medicine. Hey, this is James with the Psychiatry Consult Team. Oh, thank God. <laughs> we had a chance to talk with her and do, I'm wondering what your sense was. Did you get the sense she had capacity? I don't I don't think she did, but I guess I don't really know why. I mean, it didn't seem like she really knew what was happening. Yeah, I so I agree with you overall. I don't think that she has decisional capacity. And here's why, if, if I can be a little more specific. Yeah. You know, one, she really was not able to communicate a choice to us. We told her that the internal medicine team was recommending this nasogastric tube 
And she started telling me about the CIA and the fact that the doctors were representatives of the CIA. And I tried to reroute her back, but she really just could not communicate that she didn't want this tube or mm-hmm. that she did want this tube. Yeah, yeah. And so I felt yeah, like she, she seemed pretty paranoid, like I yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And she wasn't really understanding the relevant information or really able to understand what would. Or I asked, well, what do you think you'd happen if you don't have this tube? Or what would happen if you do have this tube? And she said she knew that her stomach hurt, but she really couldn't tell me what would happen with or without this. And I didn't think that she was applying any sort of rational process except wanting to avoid this kind of paranoid situation. So... At this time, I'm, I don't believe that she has capacity. I do wonder about an underlying psychiatric illness. And so, you know, that, that prompts me. I do have some thoughts about medications that could be helpful for that. But what do we do about, about the antibiotics and the NG tube? I, I get the sense that this is a pretty high lethality situation based on her vital signs and, and some of her electrolyte abnormalities. Yeah, yeah. We're really worried about her that she could decompensate pretty quickly without an intervention. So, so I'm going to agree that I think it makes sense to go ahead and intervene in this emergent situation and, you know, start the IV and put in an NG tube. I also got some collateral. I was talking with the adult family home where she's been staying, and she hadn't been taking any of her medications for several months now. And so my suspicion, yeah, is that she's she's not able to, to kind of make sense of the situation for that reason. Yeah. I did try and look for alternative decision makers, and she doesn't have any siblings. She's never been in a relationship or none that they know of. Okay. Her parents are both deceased at so this point. So is it like our substituted judgment in that scenario? Yeah, so in this case, we'll substitute judgment for her. And as she starts on, I'm going to recommend some antipsychotic medication. And as she starts on that, her judgment may improve. And she. so I think it will be worth continuing to check in with her about some of these decisions. So she might regain capacity? I think, think she could well regain okay. her capacity. I don't think this is going to be the situation forever. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Psychiatry. You're the best. Happy to help. This has been a discussion of capacity, episode two in our series of consultation-based topics. Yes, it is a delightful and complex topic. It is complicated, but hopefully some of the examples in this episode have helped clarify when somebody might or might not have capacity. Right, and that Applebaum article is super helpful. Just remember, communicating a decision understanding the situation, the risks and benefits of the recommended treatment and consequences, and then how they appreciate the situation, the consequences as it applies to them, and then the ability to manipulate the information in a rational way. Boom. Boom. Check out our website. Leave us a review. Tell us what you'd like to hear more about in the future. You can also check out a link to the article. The website is www.psychessentials.org. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Psych Essentials. And on Facebook now. And on Facebook. You can rate, comment. You can share Psych Essentials. We're on iTunes. Our music is by Javier Suarez off the album Tumbling Dishes. There's a link on our website. Audio engineering assistance from Alex in our brand new studio here. People, places, details. Of course, we're Change Protect Confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye. Thank you.